having just uh, finished the book of Titus, and before we jump into a near, new series in September, we're going to be looking just for this evening at Zechariah chapter 4. So you can turn there in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. This was a passage that just jumped out to me as uh, Julie and I were uh, going through Bible reading in the evening, and I thought, I want to preach this passage. And then I started studying it, and I'm like, oh man, maybe I bit off a bit more than I can chew here. Uh, but I do trust that as we look at God's Word and this amazing prophecy, that God will um, really expand our horizon. So let's give our attention to this passage. Zechariah chapter 4. This is God's holy word. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered, and I said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. May the Lord grant us his help and uh, his spirit as we look at this passage from God's word this evening. I want us to start off uh, this evening thinking of just this question of what do you feel is the state of the church today? I know in our context we particularly think of the church in the West. What is the state of the church and even this nation And I feel that for many of us, as we think of this, it's a discouraging thought. It's this thought of that, man, we've lost so much ground from what God has once done in the past. And we are increasingly seeing the forces of darkness and secular humanism, all these different atheisms, um, scientism, all the isms that come against and just feel like they're squelching the church and that we're increasingly being pushed to the edges. And it often feels like we're in dire straits and we wonder... Uh, Is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for the church in this nation, in the, uh, the church in the West? It just feels like we're losing ground so quickly. It's really easy to have this sort of kind of pessimistic outlook. Things do really seem bleak and we can easily despair. And what 
a pessimistic outlook does is it usually works to produce idleness and inactivity. If you have no hope for something to change for the better, then there's generally not going to be much activity seeking to promote that goal. A pessimistic outlet, outlook increases idleness and inactivity, a despairing inactivity, an idle pessimism. And my hope for tonight is that this evening we will acquire an optimistic vision for kingdom building through an assured confidence in the Spirit's empowering. That's what I want us to see. An optimistic vision for kingdom building through an assured confidence in the Spirit's empowering. And we will see this through how God sought to encourage the Israel, um, the Jewish church in the time of the prophets. And so we're going to dive deep into the story. I want to spend a lot of time on background and let's immerse ourselves to see how did God use this vision to encourage Israel in a situation like ours. And then we'll see how he can use it to encourage us in our situation. Okay, so a bit of um, background. We often... And uh, generally, I feel like in the church, we don't understand this time period in Israel's history very well. So let me do a brief run through here. So you remember, there's the kingdom. It's David and Solomon. The kingdom splits. Israel takes the north. Judah takes the south. They have progressions of good kings and bad kings. And they keep forsaking the Lord. And the prophets keep promising there's going to be judgment. Israel gets judged first because they were more wicked. Assyria comes and destroys that people, um, infiltrates their midst. Judah hangs on a little longer. But then as Jeremiah prophesies and Isaiah prophesies, the Babylonian Empire comes. They smash the temple to smithereens, steal all of its plunder, and take back the whole nation, basically, exile in a foreign land. Imagine this, the people of God promised a land of their own, the Spirit of God, they are taken over by a hostile enemy under God's discipline and punishment. A state that is prophesied to last 70 years. So 70 years they're in this foreign nation. But then miraculously, God turns the heart of a pagan king, a pagan king named Cyrus, and he moves the heart of Cyrus to allow the people that he's taken exile to return to Jerusalem. And the man who's in charge of heading up this return is the, is the governor of the people named Zerubbabel. We, we often forget Zerubbabel is actually a very important character in biblical history. And Zerubbabel takes 50,000 people, he leads this sort of caravan, and they go back to Jerusalem. Wow, God's promises are being fulfilled. We're coming back to our land. And rightly, their first priority is to start rebuilding the temple of God the center of their religious life, the center of their identity, their whole worshiping community revolves around the temple. And so they start building it. And they build the foundation of the temple. And some celebrate that they've finished the foundation, but the older men, the ones who remember what it was like over 70 years ago, they weep because they remember the former glory of the temple. And the one now feels nothing like what they would want. And so the people begin building, but very quickly, they come under pretty intense opposition. The people that have now started living in the land, who would later become called Samaritans, they are threatening violence against anyone seeking to rebuild the temple. They don't want these Jews to regain any strength. And so there's threats of violence, but then also, the people we're told in the book of Ezra, they start bribing political leaders. And they bribe officials to halt the work. Like, have you ever encountered red tape on a construction project? This is like a corrupt um, 
blocking of all their progress. And so the people give up. They stop rebuilding the temple. In the book of Haggai, we're told that the people say, it's, it's just not the right time. It's not the right time to build the temple. There's too much opposition. It's too bleak. And so what God does is God sends them prophets. And he sends them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah are like this dual team of, um, of prophetic utterance. And they uh, play very different roles. Haggai comes with a message of repentance. Haggai says, you have stopped building God's house so that you can just work on your own houses? How could you let God's house lay? Go back. Get to work. You need to repent. You're actually under God's discipline. Don't you wonder why you're not prospering? Don't you wonder why you're in famine? It's because you've neglected God's worship. So repent and go. Where Zechariah on the other hand, he comes with a message of hope. And through prophecies of glory, he promises a bright future, a glorious temple. Um, God lifted high. It's almost like they're doing like, like a good cop, bad cop thing. Haggai and Zechariah. I wonder, maybe Mike and I should try that one time. Someone does the bad message in the morning, someone the encouraging message in the evening. I don't know. I pick the good one. That's what I'll do. Um, and so God sends them prophets. And this is after 18 years of inactivity. 18 years of inactivity, they haven't been building a temple, and God sends Haggai and Zechariah. And Zechariah chapter 4 is a prophecy from Zechariah, particularly aimed at the leaders of Rubbable the one who started this business. And it's meant to encourage Zerubbabel to begin rebuilding the temple. And it's meant to encourage the people through Zerubbabel, the people he represents, to in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the difficulties, to get back to the business of building the house of God. To lift them out of their state of discouraged idleness and dispirited inactivity. That they might have the courage that comes with confidence in the Holy Spirit's presence and power. So let's, let's look at how this message seeks to function to work this task. Uh, take a look at Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4 verse 1. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man is awakened out of his sleep. This is the fourth vision in the book of Zechariah, and they've all happened in the same night. Could you imagine one night's sleep, God keeps showing up and waking you up with amazing visions that are a word for his people. So he's tired. God wakes him up. And he said to me, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it and seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So here's what he's seeing. He sees a candlestick. Um, what they would have known as a menorah, what was in the temple, a stand with seven candles on it. And, and not candles that burn uh, wax like we're more familiar with, but ones that burn oil. So there was usually an oil basin that would fill up the lamp so that the seven lamps would burn. But what's interesting about this vision is that the bowl that would usually hold the oil underneath the candlestick is on top of it. The bowl holding the reservoir of oil is on top. And there are seven spouts coming from this bowl that are gravity-fed into the lamp. Okay, so it's a gravity-fed bowl of oil coming into the lamp. But what's most startling to Zechariah, and most unique about this vision, is not the candlestick, but the source of the oil. 
You see, oil is usually gathered from trees. They get the olives, they press them, you distill it, then you transport it, bring it to the lamps. The priest had to refill the oil every morning. But this candlestick is getting oil directly from the source. There are two olive trees with branches and golden spouts that flow golden oil directly into the reservoir. That is, there's an inexhaustible and limitless supply of oil bypassing the help of man as it goes to this candlestick. That's the image that he's seeing. Then the angel said to me, verse 4, Or I said to the angel, What are these, Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. So Zechariah even admits his ignorance. He's like, I don't know what this is supposed to mean, God. I don't know what's with these trees and these uh, candlesticks. And the Holy Spirit, uh, through, or the, this angel through God, he tells Zechariah the meaning of this image. And just as with parables and much of prophetic literature, it's usually making one primary point. And so, so we don't want to get lost in every single little detail, but get the message, which here is helpfully given to us. And so this is what he says in verse 6. This is what the meaning of this lampstand is. And this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel, the leader, the governor of the Jewish people. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And so this angel makes it clear to Zechariah that the vision he saw is about the rebuilding of the temple. This temple that they started and stopped because of opposition. And he promises in verse 9 that Zerubbabel's hands, the same hands that laid the foundation, will now complete it. Zerubbabel's going to see the completion of the temple. He's encouraging Zerubbabel to restart the work with courageous trust in the Lord despite the dangers, despite the obstacles. And that's why he says, oh great mountain, all these mountainous obstacles, who are you? Before Zerubbabel, you're going to become a plain. The Lord will flatten all the obstacles. And the point that he gives in verse 6, the main point, is that Zerubbabel doesn't need more armies. This word might actually means army. He doesn't need more people. And he doesn't need more power. That is, they don't need more resources. They don't need more political influence in order to accomplish this vision because it's going to be accomplished by God. By God's Spirit. And he promises that Zerubbabel will lay the top stone. So not the cornerstone that started the building, but the top stone, the finishing piece. And that when he does this, completing the temple, the people will rejoice, praying God's blessing on this house of worship, saying grace to it, grace to it, that it would be a house filled with God's grace, overflowing with God's grace. He'll put in the top stone. And that made me think of, um, if, if you ever complete a puzzle, and you know how it feels good putting in that last piece? completing it, and then you rejoice that you see the picture, it's restored. Um, don't tell my family, but I used to often sneak a piece. I, never, I don't like puzzles, but I would sneak a piece, put it in my pocket, and then when the puzzle was almost done, everyone would think, oh no, we're missing a piece. And I was like, I got it, I got it. Put that last piece in, and then you get all the joy of completing the puzzle. Anyways, don't do that, kids. Uh, it's not nice. But 
Zerubbabel puts this final piece in the temple, and the people rejoice. And so this is the substance of the vision. Okay, here's the main message of it. Is that just as this lampstand does not require the strength, wisdom, or ingenuity of man to burn, so the people of God do not need vast resources or great influence in order to see God's purposes accomplished in their land. Because the Spirit is all the resource and all the power that they need. God's Spirit will flatten the obstacles that stand before them. God's Spirit will provide all the might and power necessary. And this isn't meant to tell the people to just sit back and let the Spirit do the work. No, this is actually meant to encourage the people to work. To encourage them to labor, knowing that their labor will not be in vain because of the power of the Spirit. It doesn't matter that they're weak, that they're poor, that they're small, that they're uninfluential. Because they serve the Lord of hosts. They have the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit that moved Cyrus's heart all those years ago to release the people, that moved Zerubbabel and the people to come back to their land, that same Spirit can do anything needed to accomplish God's purposes. And so this is an encouragement for Israel to faith-filled, Spirit-empowered effort. Because it's confidence in the Spirit's empowering presence that compels courage to follow after God's calling for them. The conviction of the Spirit, confidence in the Spirit, leads to action. It leads to courageous action. And so now we might ask, if we come back to the story, this is the word that Zechariah gave to Zerubbabel. And we wonder, well, what what happened? How does this story end? Does Zerubbabel heed this word? Well, we're actually told in Ezra 5, verses 1 to 2. Here's what the, um, the writer of Ezra tells us. Now, the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, remember that that duo, the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So it worked. They actually began rebuilding the temple. In confidence in the spirit. But then do you know what happens? Right after that, opposition comes. The governor of the region named Tatanai, he will not have it. And he comes once again to oppose the people. And they're probably thinking, oh, just like last time. And he writes to King Darius to say, you need to stop these Jews from rebuilding this temple. Because they're a terrible people. You do not want them to get this done. And so they're on dire straits again. But the spirit of God was with them. And the Spirit of God moves King Darius' heart, an opponent of the people, a pagan king who ruled them. And Darius looks into it, and he sees this decree that Cyrus made all those years ago. And he says, wow, Cyrus let these people return. I should be on board with this plan. And so not only does he not oppose the building, what he actually does is King Darius says, you know what, I actually want you guys to go and resource these Israelites to rebuild the temple. I want you to give them all the supplies they need to do this. And actually, furthermore, anyone who opposes them, who tries to do violence to them, will have to answer to me. Because I will see that they are protected and that they are provided for. The God's people stepped out and God showed up in an amazing, miraculously, spiritual transforming way through the heart of a pagan king. And so we're told then 
that the temple was then rebuilt four years after this event. Four years after they started rebuilding, they finished it. And Ezra 6.16 tells us the end of things. That the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Zechariah's prophecy came true. Zerubbabel saw the completion of the temple, and the people rejoiced. And the people see this happen. They stepped out. God showed up. And I wonder, do you wonder, I wonder what they were thinking. Um, This is 21 years after they stopped rebuilding the temple. They complete it. And I bet they were thinking, why did it take us 20 years to gather up the courage to go about this? Why didn't we trust that the Spirit of God would be with us in this? Why did we stay idle so long? Why were we so scared? Why were we so inactive? Why did we stand by while God's house was in ruins when we had an inexhaustible supply of the Spirit? He just moved this pagan king's heart. Why didn't we have more faith, more confidence, more trust that God will equip us to accomplish his purposes? God meant this prophecy to encourage Israel to build the temple, trusting the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. But God also intended to give this prophecy to us, to encourage us. Because you see, just like Israel, we also have a calling to build the temple. The temple is now no longer a place, but it is the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches us that we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, but also corporately. The church is now the temple, and it is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone, that keystone of the foundation. The church is now a temple built on the sacrifice of Christ, that we might be built up to be a dwelling place of the Spirit. And we remember what Christ promised in Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ sets a direction for the church for the rest of history of the building of the church, the increase of the kingdom of God. And the growth is prophesied throughout scripture. We saw in Daniel 2 those times ago how the little stone comes and becomes a great mountain. We read of how the small mustard seed becomes the greatest tree. How the leaven leavens the whole loaf. And we see in history how a hundred people in an upper room prayer meeting becomes the greatest movement in all history. Throughout the globe, worshipers of Jesus, Christ is building his church The work of building the church is no less than the work of the Great Commission. Making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we do that, Christ said, um, knowing that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. He's with us by his spirit. He has given the church the spirit. And the spirit fills the temple of God, God's people, like it filled that literal house in the Old Testament. And we follow Christ the light of the world, proclaiming his word, oh, following in his ways. And as we do so, we shine, like that menorah was meant to shine in the temple with that inexhaustible supply of oil. We're to shine like a city on a hill, one that ought not be put under a basket. And this kingdom building, this light shine mission God's given to us, is not complete until every tongue, every knee bows to Christ. Everyone confesses Christ. 
The mission's not over until the world is a disciple of Jesus. And I want to encourage us and call us here that our work of building the church here in West Michigan or here in Zealand, it's not done when we reach sustainability. It's not done when we're at a comfortable 350 or whatever number you want to pick. We're not done building the church in Zealand until every household in Zealand worships Jesus. And until that point, we can't let off the gas. We can't get content. And God has given us all the supplies we need. We need. He's given us his very spirit to see the building work of his church completed. We have a calling to build. And I think we need a bit of a bigger vision. We need the sort of vision that we know could only be accomplished by the Spirit of God. If your goals, if our goals for this church are attainable without the Spirit's help, we're thinking way too small. Way too small. We have a calling to build like Israel, and we also, just like Israel, have the promise of the Spirit's empowering presence. This passage is not telling us that we need to go and try to get more spiritual power. It's not saying that we need to head off to the olive trees to just work harder, to gather more olives, to press them, that we might attain more spiritual power. This is a promise that we already have full spiritual power. And so it was an encouragement to Israel that they already had everything they needed. They didn't need to get more. They just needed to trust it and step out in confidence in it. I think we forget sometimes that Pentecost has already happened. The Spirit has already been poured out from on high. We don't need to wait till we get more of it. We, it is to us to step out in faith, in courageous confidence that the Spirit of God will equip and supply every need we might have. We need to step out in faith, trusting that God will not let us go, that he will hold us fast. Uh, kind of like that classic scene that popped up in Indiana Jones and now in uh, that Pixar Onward movie that you have an invisible bridge and you need to step out on it, but it doesn't show up until you actually put your trust to stand on it. We need to step out in faith, trusting the Spirit of God to equip us and to be with us. It's confidence, confidence in the enabling and empowering presence of the Spirit that compels our kingdom-building mission. Confidence in the Spirit's power produces courage for our kingdom calling. We will be courageous to the extent that we trust the Spirit. And now let's just think for ourselves in just a couple areas of practical application. Where do you need greater confidence in the Spirit's supplying power that you might do your part in building the church of God? Appearance. Do you guys need greater confidence in the spirit supply as you seek to disciple your children or engage in family worship? I know it's easy to be discouraged by the obstacles, the, the, the um, inattentiveness of your children, the disobedience of your children, whether it feels like they're getting anything out of it. But will you trust the spirit's presence, that he will be there to help and equip and that you already have everything you need to do that work of building the church that God's called you to do? Do you need greater confidence in the Spirit's equipping power as you seek to bring up faith with coworkers or friends or students at school? It takes courage to bring up a faith conversation, to ask about the state of another person's heart and soul. But we need the courage that comes from trusting that the Holy Spirit is with us, that he has already equipped us with everything good to do his will. 
Do you need greater confidence in the Holy Spirit in order to step out and get involved with or begin that ministry that God set on your heart? A ministry in the church or a ministry in the community. Something you've been dreaming about for years, but maybe people told you that it was too hard or it wouldn't work or you didn't have what it took or that we don't have enough resources for that or that that there's just not going to be a go of that. Don't let anyone tell you that dreams of building God's kingdom and doing good for him are too hard or small because we serve the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all supply and the Lord of all resource. And I especially want to encourage this um, to you young people here. Your teenage or young adult years are times where God will give you vision in your heart and dreams that often die out when you're older. And don't let your youth discourage you because if you trust Christ, you too have the Holy Spirit. And you too can serve and partner in this work of building the church of God. You can witness for Christ. You can disciple others. You can serve and love and pour yourself out. So let God's dreams come and fill your heart, knowing that you have the Spirit and you can trust the Spirit's empowering presence. There is always enough in the kingdom of God. There's always enough resources when we have the Spirit of God. There's always enough. It's for us to step out. It's for us to step out trusting God to show up. To be like Peter stepping out in the water, trusting that Christ, if you call me, I will come. And even though I feel like I ought to sink, I will trust that you will uphold and sustain me. This is how this vision encouraged the church 2,500 years ago, and it encourages us still today. Inexhaustible spiritual fuel to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. There's one, one last thing in the vision we're going to look at briefly. Zechariah has one question that's been plaguing him, that he's asked three times. And the spirit, through this angel, waits till the end to say it. Verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. One last question Zechariah has. How is this oil getting from the tree into the bowl? It's flowing out of some branches and through some golden pipes. What are the branches? How is, what channel is the oil going through? And he hears that it is the two anointed ones, or more literally, the two sons of oil. And commentators speculate who the two sons of oil are, whether it's Zechariah and Haggai, or Moses and Elijah, or the, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the kingship and the priesthood. And no one knows for sure because God didn't tell us. But here's what everyone does agree on. Whatever the direct referent might or might not be, the fulfillment of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of oil. Jesus Christ was the one who was anointed with the spirit without measure. That's what his name means. Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. And Christ is the only mediator between God and man. That means Jesus is the only person that the spirit of God can come through to get to the church. And Christ as the foundation, he laid down his life 
paying the debts of his people, that the Holy Spirit might be poured out, that it might come through his sacrifice as he ascended on high to come to his people. Jesus is the one through whom the Spirit comes. He does not give the Spirit by measure. And the only way then, the only way to be connected to this inexhaustible supply of spiritual strength and might is to be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be connected to him by faith. Faith in his identity as the Son of God. Faith and trust in his death for the forgiveness of sins. Faith in his resurrection and ascension and enthronement as king at the right hand of God. And when by faith you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a new creation and a new temple of the Holy Spirit, given an inexhaustible supply of spiritual power in order to accomplish the purposes God has for your life. And so as spirit-filled people, let's dream big and let's step out into all that God would have for us, whether the small things or the big things, trusting that the Spirit will be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed that you would give us such an incredible access to the Spirit, that you would share your own Spirit with us and make us to be temples indwelt by God. What an incredible privilege. Lord, forgive us for living below our privileges. For forgetting what it is you've called us to do, this work of disciple making. Forgive us, Lord, for our small mindedness, for how easily we're contented with lesser things than you would have for us. Lord, stir in us a holy discontent, a holy optimism for greater things, that we would long to see your churches full, that everyone would worship the King of Grace. Lord, let us walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And keep on being filled daily with renewed energies, a renewed experience and encounter with your presence. Lord, we are needy and desperate people and we ask that you will enter this temple, that you will touch your people because we want to be with you and we want to be like you. We ask for your help. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.